Welcome to Good Medicine Explained. I'm your host, Dr. James R. Brown. This is episode number five for the week of June 28, 2020. Now, I will agree that it's very difficult to stay sheltered in place and minimize our normal, everyday life experiences. But one of the things that I am concerned about is how this type of activity will promote conditions of prediabetes and diabetes. And I wanted to give some attention to people out there who are concerned or on the borderline of being diabetic or actually have diabetes and are trying to manage and maintain it. With this condition of people being locked in at home and not having as much physical activity, we find that food serves as a form of comfort. And as I've spoken before, the nervous system is wired for stimulus. And polyphagia, or an abundance of eating, is a result sometimes of depression or stress or anxiety. And all of these psychological disorders can result in people accumulating and consuming more of the unhealthy carbohydrate foods that we should be consuming. In preparation for this talk, I actually did a little background history into sugar and how sugar has been a part of the human diet for thousands and thousands of years. In the earliest uh, beginnings of civilization, sugar was primarily consumed by fruit and honey. Bees were known to be abundant in the continents of Asia, Africa, and Europe, but not in the Americas. In the Americas, people used tree syrup, agave nectar from cacti, or mashed up fruits. Now, sugar was first domesticated as a crop around 8000 BC. It was noted historically in a region of the world called New Guinea in Indonesia. And seaborne traders introduced the domesticated crop to areas of Southeast Asia, China, and India over the succeeding thousands of years. The very first chemically refined sugar was discovered in India about 2,500 years ago. And we know that around the year 325, the Greeks and Romans who traveled to India brought back this refined sugar to Europe. It was then introduced in the 6th century in Persia, and it actually appeared in Hawaii. Around the 9th century, Spain and Portugal were very concerned and interested in the crop of sugar. Then in 1425, the Spanish set up crops for sugarcane in the Canary Islands off of the continent. In 1492, Columbus actually brought sugarcane from the Canary Islands to Hispaniola, 
which is the present-day island of Haiti and the Dominican Republic. By 1516, Hispaniola was the largest sugar producer in the world. The Portuguese brought sugar plantations around the 1500s to Brazil. And the Dutch in the 1600s were carrying sugarcane from the South American colonies to the Caribbean islands, where it was grown from Barbados to the Virgin Islands. And as we know, sugar became the engine of the transatlantic slave trade that brought millions of Africans to the Americas. The British colonists called it white gold because profit from the sugar trade helped the colonists become independent from Great Britain. In the 1750s, sugar was abundant in Louisiana and then in Florida and Texas. By 1879, California was also participating in sugar production. Now, I have to use this moment to introduce some basic medical science. I won't get too detailed. It's very simplified, but it helps lead into the later discussion of what we can do. Everything that we eat or drink is broken down in the body into three basic nutrients, protein, carbohydrate, or fat. Carbohydrates are sugars. Now, physiologically, the hypothalamus, a region in our brain, is considered to be the homeostatic control center responsible for regulating hunger and appetite. In that region of our brain, the hypothalamus, certain hormones that you may have heard of before, like leptin and ghrelin and PPY and a few others, have their impact. Now, there are several neurohormonal systems in the hypothalamus that communicates directly to areas in the brain where our reward, emotion, memory are connected to the cognitive control and prefrontal cortex areas where decision-making takes place. And this is where I tell most of my patients that the taste buds overrule the brain. And the reason is that glucose modulates the release of the neurotransmitter dopamine in the brain's pleasure center known as the nucleus accumbens and in the amygdala and the limbic system. And it is so intense that it has the same qualities of stimulus that heroin or nicotine has. Now, there are four calories per gram of sugar. So a teaspoon of sugar has 4.2 or roughly 4 grams of sugar in it. Men should not consume more than 9 teaspoons, which is about 36 grams or 150 calories of added sugar per day. For women, they should limit to about 6 teaspoons or 25 grams or 100 calories of added sugar per day. However, in the United States, 
the average sugar intake is about 22 teaspoons per person per day, which is almost four times more than the recommended quantity by the World Health Organization. This excess consumption of sugar clearly leads to the development of diabetes, obesity, hypertension, and the condition we call the metabolic syndrome. So what is basically happening is that this excessive amount of sugar that people are consuming increases the concentration in the small blood vessels of the body, the blood vessels leading to the eyes, leading to the kidneys, leading to the far extreme points of our body, like our toes and our feet. So diabetics are very familiar with this microvascular disorder where these blood vessels have been saturated with excessive amounts of glucose molecules. And this excessive glucose accumulates in the cells in the form of sorbitol. And it literally inactivates those cells. And so cellular activity dies and blood flow going to those areas is diminished. Glucose homeostasis, which is the balance of sugar, is achieved by coordinating the action of the liver, where a lot of our glucose is made, the muscles and fat tissue, which take up uh, the glucose that we consume, and the pancreas, in particular the islet cells of the pancreas where insulin is released. And so in our breakdown of food that we ingest, polysaccharides, which are the large starch or glycogen molecules, are broken down by an enzyme called amylase into maltose. Maltose is a disaccharide. It actually has two attached molecules of sugar. And maltose is broken down by an enzyme called maltase to glucose. So you get the monosaccharide glucose. And in our body, we absorb these monosaccharides, primarily glucose, but also fructose and galactose. And these monosaccharides or sugars are taken up into skeletal muscle and other tissues of our body. Now, that's all the science. I want to introduce to you a topic called the glycemic index. The glycemic index is a relative ranking of the carbohydrate content in foods according to how they affect the blood glucose and insulin levels. Foods that have a high glycemic index quickly break down and absorb the carbohydrate, which causes a rapid and very high rise in your blood sugar. And so the principle of the glycemic index is to give you an actual detailed comparison of the different groups and types of food that 
we commonly consume and try and help you make better selections, foods that have a lower glycemic index value. Now, sugar, the supreme reference, has a glycemic index value of 100. And what you're trying to do is select foods that have index values of about 70 or lower. Now, there are certain things that we do with our food that probably influence the glycemic index or the rate at which our carbohydrates are being absorbed. Unprocessed whole food that isn't cooked will actually make digestion slow. And that slow digestive process limits how much carbohydrate we can absorb and extract from that food. The hard, compact starch granules into easily digestible starch granules, like the polysaccharides I mentioned. This action is what is known as gelatinization, a gelatin. Some granules will actually burst and release or free up individual starch molecules in this process of cooking, which can then make more of the available carbohydrate absorbed and increase the glycemic index. Another thing that can affect how much carbohydrate we consume is the particle size and processing. If you take a whole grain of wheat off of a plant and you eat it, you're not going to consume as much of the available carbohydrate as you would if you mill it or take it to a location where it's ground down into flour, into small particles. So milling, beating, grinding, mixing, mashing, all of these ways that we prepare food has a way of increasing the glycemic index. This is why we make reference to trying to eat your food as whole as possible. Another thing that can impact your glycemic index or absorption is the soluble fiber content. Soluble fiber foods like oats and legumes lower the glycemic index because they have a slower delayed process getting out of the stomach and emptying the stomach. Insoluble fiber, on the other hand, is found in digestive bran, which does not affect the absorption of carbohydrates because they don't slow down the gastric emptying. Now, if you're able to mix a little protein and fat into the meal that you consume, that actually is helpful in lowering the glycemic index. But too much protein utilizes the insulin that is available and taxes the kidneys because protein is removed from the body through the kidneys. Too much fat reduces the effectiveness of insulin. And so you don't want too much of either, but adding them into the meal with your carbohydrate 
is another means of lowering the glycemic index, the amount of insulin that gets released because of a rising sugar concentration in the blood. Another effective way to reduce the absorption of carbohydrates is adding a little acidity to your meal. The more acidic a meal, the lower the glycemic index. So adding vinegar or lemon or other citrus fruits into your meal also is effective in reducing the glycemic index. And probably one of the other important things is the pacing of your meal. Eating at a slower pace tends to slow down the absorption as opposed to dumping a full plate of food in your belly in uh, less than 10 minutes. Now, the last thing I wanted to mention is insulin resistance. That is the body not being able to recognize or respond to the presence of insulin in the blood. You get persistently high levels of insulin over extended periods of time when your diet is composed of a high carbohydrate concentration. And as a result, cells that would normally take in glucose from the bloodstream are no longer responding to the insulin that acts on the cell membrane. And so glucose is in very high concentration in the blood, but the cells feel as though they're starving. So some of the things that we know cause insulin resistance are conditions like inflammation, infections from enteroviruses and pneumonias, produce these inflammatory mediators called cytokines, which damage cells through free radicals and oxidative stress, and they impair the function of insulin. High amounts of saturated fats, especially stearic and palmitic acids, create oxidative stress, and they mutate the gene transcription in insulin and damage the mitochondria in the cells that are being affected. As I mentioned earlier, processed and refined carbohydrates like sugary cereals, pasta, white rice, bread, artificial sweeteners, these are all major contributors to the hyperglycemic state. And we would be better off not making that a major part of our diet. Now one of my favorite recommendations is exercise. As we know, exercise will utilize the glucose that you have available and lower your serum glucose. And it also raises your metabolic rate, which again is utilizing available stores of glucose. And so very often I encourage my diabetic patients to try to get four days of exercise at 40 minutes per session. And that benefit will aid in keeping the blood sugars down into a more regulated level. However, your benefits of exercise do drop off or uh, reduce 
if you've had more than 48 hours of rest in between exercise sessions. Lower levels of vitamin D are also known to promote insulin resistance, and so having the appropriate concentration of vitamin D in your bloodstream aids in the proper effect of our insulin. Also, sleep apnea. Sleep apnea is associated with higher levels of leptin, and leptin, of course, will promote a stronger appetite. For women who are pregnant, they sometimes can develop gestational diabetes, which is actually a result of the progesterone concentration that's being produced during the pregnancy state. We all know that cigarette smoking is not recommended. One of its damaging effects, of course, is insulin resistance. Cigarette smokers have about a 40% higher incidence of insulin resistance, leading to prediabetes and diabetes. And so discontinuing cigarette smoking is important for that. And of course, with the pandemic, we know about the chronic stress that causes the release of stress hormones like adrenaline and norepinephrine and cortisol. These chronically high levels of stress hormones in our bloodstream keeps higher levels of insulin stimulation going and rushing glucose into muscles. Eventually, these cells become resistant to the chronically high levels of insulin that are in circulation, which leads to your insulin resistance. I mentioned about the metabolic syndrome, the excess fat deposit around the waist, the hypertension, the cholesterol elevation, the elevated blood sugar. These are features known to cause insulin resistance. And then some medications that we actually prescribe for various medical conditions, particularly the beta blockers, medicines sometimes used for high blood pressure or other purposes, they can interfere with the release of insulin from the pancreas or medications that reduce your serum potassium levels like diuretics, laxatives, steroids, they are known to also interfere with insulin. And lastly, of course, is hypertension, which creates an inflammatory response and disrupts insulin signals in the liver, the fatty tissues, and the skeletal muscle, uh, promoting excess sugar in our bloodstream. So the takeaway points from this discussion is that insulin resistance and diabetes is a problem processing carbohydrates, and its complications are focused in the microvascular systems of our body. Managing elevated blood sugar can be simplified with the right mindset and lifestyle approach. I encourage you to take advantage of helpful tools like the glycemic index, looking at nutrition labels when you're buying food, making sure that you are not consuming more 
than you should for your good health. If this particular topic or any of the previous episodes have provoked questions for you, be reassured that I do regular Q&As on my Instagram account at jrbrownmd. You can submit your questions there through direct messaging. However, I emphasize that I do not serve as a replacement or substitute for your own personal physicians, nor do I provide individualized consultations outside of my practice. I'd like to thank my podcast team, Lauren and Natalie, who really are responsible for making this podcast possible. Until our next opportunity, may you be happy, may you be healthy, May you be loved, and may you have a peaceful heart.